Welcome to episode 89 of the Sleeper in the Bus podcast. This podcast will be covering the Arizona Diamondbacks and Los Angeles Dodgers today. I'm joined once again by Inoceros. What's going on, buddy? Not much. The kid is uh, homesick today, so uh, if we get interrupted by uh, wailing, uh, I I apologize. Been there and done that uh, <laughs> a few times. <laughs> Been there and done that a few times. But my house is a kid free tonight, as my kids are off doing their choir practice. So works well for me with that. Uh, so again, thanks for your support. On uh, we saw a couple of iTunes reviews. That was really cool. So thanks for doing that and the feedback that you left us in the comment section of the last episodes. And we believe we've answered the questions that were posted in there. If we haven't, we'll get back to that. Uh, but without any further delay, let's talk about the Diamondbacks. And first thing there is shortstop. We've got three different guys qualified to play shortstop, but who do you see taking the lead here in this situation? Yeah, it's really weird. I, you know, Kevin Towers is a weird guy. Um, it, it just, and I, I hate to comment too much on this from the outside without, you know, dealing with him, but, you know, directly, but it just seems like he, you know, he has like favorites mm-hmm. and 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 people that he that he makes a he makes decisions quickly. It seems like he he you know you kind of get in his doghouse and then you're off the team. Yeah, it does and definitely seem like that. It doesn't seem like that, and it's like Bauer came up, and you know a lot of people like Bauer, and there were legitimate reasons not to like Bauer, but I feel like he saw Bauer in spring training and decided to trade him right away. And you know, Didi Gregorius. Some people liked him. You know, there's a really inconsistent minor league numbers. He showed some power. He didn't show any power. There's that famous statement where Tower said something like, oh, you know, he can be our Derek Jeter. And, um, you know, that just seemed so ridiculous. And it seemed like over the top with love. And then he gets, you know, 400 plate appearances and something that would have been an average major leaguer out of D.D. Gregorius, which might be a win. Um, for trading away Trevor Bauer, uh, who we don't even know if he'll be a starting pitcher. But at the same time, now he's rumored to to be opening it up to com- uh, competition. And I, if I look at, you know, what Didi Gregorius did, and then I look at Chris Owings' minor league numbers, I probably would just go with Didi Gregorius because he did what he did, and and I think he can be even better defensively than he was last year. With, with Gregorius, what kind of stands out is people will remember that game late in May where he had the two home runs in Yankee Stadium. Uh, you know, I think at least one of them was off Phil Hughes, which, uh, again, or maybe it was just he had the home run off of Phil Hughes in Yankee Stadium. I remember that getting a lot of play. And yes, he was hot out of the gate, hit 407 in April, uh, but you saw it falling apart because he had a 27% strikeout rate and just a 3% walk rate. For the rest of the season, from May 1st on, 10% walk rate and 15% strikeout rate. So that's good. But it was empty. Hit 239, slug 339. It just wasn't there. So he made better contact but got nothing out of it. Now, in the field's a different story. We know how good he is out there. But when you look at that three-headed munch, you got to hope that somebody doesn't get into the doghouse because, like you said, you either get buried or you get traded in that situation. Yeah. Um, 
but you know, it's not you know, it's not like Chris Owings shows um the profile of uh of a uh of a sure thing. I mean, you look at up and down Chris Owings uh minor league profile, yes, he has uh more pro- more power uh probably. And um and uh and I would say that uh he strikes out a lot more. Mm-hmm. Uh and he really has never taken a walk except for in that 61 plate appearances last year in the major league. So, I mean, it would be more likely to say that he won't, that he won't take walks like Didi Gregorius and that he'll strike out more than Didi Gregorius and he'll probably show a little bit more power and he'll probably be worse on defense. So to me, that's like he'll be worse in three ways, but yeah, he's coming off a 291 batting average and yeah, he has a little bit more power. I can't comment on the grittiness of these two players. <laughs> I mean, I've got it from a source that Kevin Towers wore jorts when he was down in the Dominican Republic uh, a couple of months ago. So I have to question anybody's decision skills who wears jorts to begin with. But from a fantasy perspective, could, do you, can you roster any of these guys as a shortstop in a mixed league? I, uh, I don't think uh, – I don't – I think Didi Gregorius really has okay. He he Didi Gregorius could have an empty batting average for you. I think. Uh, I think that uh, I, I think that you know with a little bit of plus uh, you know batting average on balls in play. You know what's weird is that he 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 hits fly balls. He has a batted ball mix of a guy with some power. So you know, and he doesn't really have speed. So mm-hmm. you know. He could hit 260 with 50 home, 15 home runs and be like a, a Steven Drew type, um, sort of back end, mixed in, middle infield kind of guy. I do think Didi Gregorius has more upside than he showed last year. Um, and I actually do think that Chris, Chris Owings could be a mixed leaguer. He'd be a little bit more like a 250 hitter, um, with, uh, 20 home runs. Um, I just see that he's a little, but he, you know, he hits a lot of ground balls too. So, I do think that they have mixed league upside. I mean, Chris Owings is the guy who's shown more power and stolen base uh, ability in the minors. So I guess if you're looking at this from a um, fantasy standpoint, you're, you're rooting for Chris Owings. Yeah, that's fair enough. I, I like that assessment on the three players. Uh, Owings, I've, I've seen played live. I, I like how I, I like how he looked in the field live, definitely. But it just right now, if you're – in a 12-team, I'm saying no way. I don't want any of these guys. In a 15-team league, I'd be willing to take a shot at them as my middle infield late in the draft or late in an auction. But that's pretty much it. Well, things change a little bit if it's a keeper league, obviously. Yeah, keeper league effect. But I'm just in a reset league. It's just this is the part of draft. If I'm trying to set my my Mendoza line at the position right now in a 12-team mixed league, all three of these names rank below that in a 15-team league. I may make the exception for Owings. really depends on how much playing time that he could get. And obviously in 15, in a mixed league, you can't hold a guy based on the potential of playing time unless you've got a reserve roster. Yeah. Uh, with the reserve roster, I, I, I might consider, like, for example, if my starting shortstop, I'm looking for a low-end starting shortstop in our in our league, or my, my I did a 14-team um, industry draft that I've been referring to. Um, Roto World, and uh, a back-end mixed infield option is Omar Infante, uh, Jonathan VR, uh, I picked Rendon, Nick Franklin. 
if one of those guys was actually a starter uh, for my team, like a starting middle infielder, then I might be more likely to spend a reserve spot on uh, Owings um, or, or Gregorius. And probably I'd, I'd just pick Owings and hope that he got the job because, uh, you know, there are other reserve middle infield options that are probably less exciting. I mean, in this, in this draft, uh, as my reserve middle infielder, I took Alcides Escobar. And, you know, I guess there's the upside there for like a 270 batting average and 30 steals. Mm-hmm. But I think that's, that's like, that's upside, upside. That's like, you know, 90, 90th percentile projection or whatever. And the 90th percentile projection always is probably like 250, 260, 2010 or something. So um, I'd rather have the guy that kind of is more even across the board. Yeah, agreed on that part. Let's shift over to the other side of the di- other side of the bag and Aaron Hill. Aaron Hill uh, has definitely enjoyed his playing time in Arizona. Uh, last year, the only problem, this, his skills over the last two seasons have been incredibly stable. Uh, strikeout rate, walk rate, nearly identical. His batting average and balls in play has nearly been the same. Has hit for a strong average in both seasons. Has gotten on base well in both seasons. The big difference was last year, Missed time with the broken hand, and that hurt his power. His slugging percentage dropped. This is a guy who's pretty much pulled power to begin with. You look at all of his home runs, and they're almost all to left field, with the exception of two to left center. So this is pull power, but missed the time with the broken hand. That cut into his production last year, coming off that huge 2012 season. Uh, also, for whatever reason, didn't run much. I mean, he, had, he was 14 of 19 in 2012, and then was one of five last year. How do you explain that? Uh, you know, Aaron Hill's the kind of guy that um, there are a lot of reasons for me uh, to just be totally afraid of him. I'm, I'm, I'm like literally afraid of Aaron Hill. And it's the, it's the things that you've mentioned. But it's also just the way that he started off his career as a ground ball hitting, no power guy, um, all about batting average. And then he had the boost. Uh, the power boost, and then he it all disappeared again. And then he had the crazy year, kind of like Brett Booneyan year, where he hit 36 for the Blue Jays. Mm-hmm. And then he, from then point on, his his ground ball, fly ball switch uh, mix just switched completely uh, from being all ground ball, or not all ground ball, but more ground ball, to being like almost literally all fly ball. I mean, he was he was jacking it up in with Toronto. He was doing the Jose Bautista approach where everything was pulled, everything was in the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it worked, but it also, you know, that gave him that year with the 205 batting average, which is because, you know, you can get shifted um, and you can, uh, and it's, you know, if you're putting everything in the air, your batting average on balls and play goes down. Uh, and if you're combining that with strikeouts, you're not putting a ton of balls in play. So it's just like, it's the kind of mix to me that gives for a very volatile batting average on balls in play. And you've seen that with him. He's had a, a Babbitt from anywhere from 196 uh, to 324, which I think has to be one of the bigger spreads. And, and just all the oscillation with, oh, this year he's going to steal a lot of bases, and this year he's going to steal no bases, and this year he's going to hit a lot of ground balls, and this year he's going to hit a lot of fly balls. I find him hard to project. I mean, he is a bit of an oddball. One of the things that noticed when I looked at it is, you know, from 2008 to 2010 there in Toronto, his, you know, his swing rate within the strike zone was in the low 70s. And then in his time with Arizona, it's been 62%. So he's, he's become a more selective hitter 
uh, now that he's been with the Diamondbacks for whatever reason. I really don't understand why. I mean, as you said, just an awful year in 08, an 09-10 hit for the power while swinging a lot of stuff, has cut back his swing rate, and is still hit for good power even with the hand injury last year. So he is – and then the, without giving up contact – uh, he's not really walking any more than he did. So it, it's kind of a weird mix. He really is, as you said, very tough to predict where this guy could go. If he stays healthy, I think Aaron Hill, you know, I still think Aaron Hill could be a top 10 second baseman at the position because there's not a lot of depth at the position this year. But you could easily see him being a, 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 a 11 to 20 guy as well just because of how volatile his skill set has been in some areas. Yeah, just a note about that swing rate. You know, he started swinging less, and he started swinging less at, at pitches in the zone, and he started reaching more. I mean, there's like a, a, a clear little movement there where he's reaching more, even though he's swinging less. So it's very strange. The whole the whole thing is very strange. Where he's he's just he's just like changed a lot from year to year. Right. And you know, if he stays like last year was one of his most even ground ball to fly ball uh, mixes of his career. It was almost one-to-one. And I think if he stays there with the decent strikeout rate and the good play, and the good, uh, play discipline and above-average power, I think he could be like a 280 hitter with 20 homers, and I would project him into three or four steals. So, that's, I mean, that's definitely top 12. It's probably top 10. That's good. But the risk is that he either goes all pull – or all fly ball again and hits anywhere from, you know, 220 to 240 with 25 homers, you know, I don't think that it's always worth the extra homers when he, when he kind of digs in with his heel. So um, I guess we were rooting for the, the more disciplined, more um, sort of one-to-one ground ball to fly ball guy. Since we, we, we did a little bit of this in the last couple episodes, so going back to his NFBC ADP, I'll do a three ahead and three behind. The three guys that are taking that are being taken ahead of Aaron Hill right now are uh, Jed Jerko, Daniel Murphy, Brandon Phillips. The three guys behind him, Chase Utley, Howie Kendrick, Jerks, and Profar. Are you comfortable with where Aaron Hill is rated in that regard? You said above him were Phillips? Phillips, Murphy, and Jerko. I actually think he's a little low in that group. Agreed. Agreed. I, I I said earlier, I think he's a top 10. Right now, he's the 11th guy. I feel comfortable taking him ahead of Brandon Phillips and Daniel Murphy simply because if the power is still there, this is the 20-plus home run guy, and neither of those guys are doing that. Um, and if he gets back to running a little better, going from 14 to 1, some of that is – you know, Kirk Gibson's a pretty conservative guy in that regard. He's like Jim Leland uh, as, as far as stolen bases go. But if he if he even settles in the middle of what he did in 2012 and 2013, I think by season's end, he's better than both of those guys. Yeah, yeah. And in my draft, it might have just been a, the, 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 the vagaries of a single draft because in my draft, he went two behind Matt Carpenter. Um, and he went 58 overall. He went just ahead of Elvis, uh, Elvis Andrews, but on the second base side, he went ahead of Ben Zobrist, went ahead of Brandon Phillips. That might be a little bit too much helium for me. And in the NF, the FSTA draft, he went the uh, he went towards the end of the eighth round, and that's a 13 team league, so he went towards the end of the eighth round in that one. Dude, you're seeing, I mean, we're seeing a, a, a decent amount of variance. So, 
I, it behooves anybody listening, I think, to to really take some time looking at Aaron Hill's page and decide how you feel about him, uh, how you how you feel about his health, because if you like him, you'll get him maybe in your draft, and it just by taking him in the sixth or seventh round instead of the eighth. Um, and uh, personally, I think I value him very similarly similarly to Jerko. That's why I kind of paused at your three above. I mean. I would take him ahead of of uh, uh, Brandon Phillips, who I think is getting old. Um, and uh, who was the second name? Uh, Daniel Murphy. Daniel Murphy. I don't. I don't trust him at all. Uh, I don't think he's going to steal twenty again. Um, so I would have taken him, you know, ahead of those two, if just barely. But I think he belongs around Jed Jericho because Jed Jericho. Um, there's the upside for a better batting average, I think, but he showed the power already. And just because of his age, I think he's a little bit more likely to be healthy. So I think they're, those are, I think they're decent comps for each other in terms of, you know, I don't think that either is going to steal a lot of bases and they probably both have similar upside and similar downside. So wherever you think Jerko is, you know, Hill's probably going to go above him, but you, you, I would probably wait for Hill to go and then take Jerko in the same round or the next round. Yeah, definitely. If, if the two of them are out there, I, I, Jerko's definitely, because of the power he hits with in the park he hits with, exciting guy to watch. Let's shift out to the outfield and look at their, their new outfield because Prado is shifting into third base. They, uh, traded Adam Eaton. And so they now have an outfield. Their top four outfielders, Mark Trumbo, Gerard Parra, Cody Ross. And AJ Pollock are, are their top four outfielders. Let's start with Trumbo. Uh, Trumbo, his current ADP at uh, NFBC is 70. In the two expert drafts that I've tracked, he's been taken 64 and 68. So people are viewing him there. And then his projections, if we look at Steamer, Steamer's got him hitting 27 bombs, driving 82. Oliver's a little more uh, excited with 30 and 93. And fans are even more excited, 33 and 94. How do you see the switch in location affecting what Mark Trumbo does in 2014? You know, I know uh, that there are things to worry about with Mark Trumbo in terms of his strikeout rate, his swinging strike rate, some of his plate disciplines, maybe his batting average. But I, at the same time, I think that all of the projections are underrating the effect this move could have for him. Uh, I mean – Angel Stadium is 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 not is one of the harder places to hit a home run out of, and Arizona is one of the easier places. So it's it's a, I think it's a, a fairly big deal for him, um, and he already hit 32 and 34 last year. So and he's uh, 27. Mm-hmm. He'll be 20 this year. You know, even if I who found some uh, evidence that power peaks at 25 or 26, I wouldn't call him you know ready to drop off a cliff. So. I think at the very least, I'd project him into the 34 he hit last year, um, you know, plus or minus one. Um, so I agree with fans on this one. Yeah, I think the I think the power is a little low for him. You mentioned the flaws. I wrote about the flaw. I believe I wrote this uh, that for the ESPN Sweet Spot uh, during the winter meetings when that one happened. But you look at his issues; he's making less zone contact on a year by year basis, and his out of zone contact has been declining at the same rate. But when he makes contact, he hits it hard and he hits it a long way. So he is, he's always been that kind of, you know, mistake hitter. If you make a mistake, he will crush it. What I like about him, walk rate has improved each of the last three seasons. Strikeout rate 
has it's declined, but over the last couple of years, it's rather it's been pretty much the same uh, in that regard. And again, hits for raw power moving to that ballpark. I think he may have that same kind of Aaron Hill effect that Aaron Hill saw. Not that Rogers Center is a poor powers park, but the ball flies in Chase Field. That's what it does. And I think Trumbo, there's a there's a good chance he can hit 40 bombs there. I just wondered now that he's got to play outfield defense on a full time basis how that's going to factor in the play. You know, there's no ability to DH. He's not going to – maybe he'll give Goldie a, a day off here or there uh, if, if he's not going to play the full 162. But he's got to play in that outfield, and that's a big outfield. And I wonder if that's going to affect him uh, a little more because he's not, you know, the best guy in the outfield. Yeah, um, that is uh, something to think about. Although, you know, when he played DH, uh, there was a DH penalty uh, where it's it's about 10% harder to to, uh, to hit when you're uh, coming off the bench. But, um, you know, I, I think uh, I think the one thing that is, worries me a little bit with the plate discipline stuff is from talking to him and interviewing him, I get the sense that he's like a hard worker that has pushed his, his walk rate to average just by studying the pitchers a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, so in that way, you know, there will be some adjustment for the pitchers, uh, with, you know, in respect to him and knowing what he likes. But uh, the adjustment back might be harder for him just because they're all new pitchers. Fair enough. What about the other two positions? When you look at center field and right field, you've got Pollock, you've got Ross, and you've got Para. Uh, Pollock and Ross are a little bit weird to me because there's not a clean platoon situation there. Because Ross, they both have the same strength. They both hit lefties better than righties. Uh, and that, that's really their strength. Pollock, I, I would this, I would feel, is the better defender and just having to watch the eye test. And Paras is obviously fantastic in right field with that. But how do you see that situation playing out? And are either one of those guys rosterable in a mixed league? Yeah, I, you know, I thought at first that it would be a Paul uh, and Ross platoon. But, yeah, you're right. that they, they both do the same thing. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that, that, uh, that Para is, uh, a, a center fielder, you know, a full-time starting center fielder. So I think that gives, I mean, he has been excellent in right. Um, uh, and I'm just trying to figure out, okay, they, they played him there, you know, 300, 400 innings in 2012, you know, 270 innings in, in, two, in 2013. So, they do play par and center from time to time. And uh, the number, I guess it could be paras to, to, to win, um, you know, at least a para Pollock platoon, uh, you know, because they're lefty righty. And considering the, the money that they gave uh, the Ross and the, the kind of uh, pedigree that, or the, 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 the credit that Ross gets mm-hmm. um, his work in the past, I think, if I had to bet on anything, I'd say Para Pollock uh, in center and, and Ross gets a full time in right. But if it was my team, I'd probably platoon uh, Ross and Para and just let Pollock's defense um, win out in center. Yeah, I, that's how I look at it as well. I, I love Para as a real baseball player, but I just it, there's just not as much fantasy baseball player value there. Uh, but part is fun to watch defensively. I love watching his throws. It's just, especially when somebody's like, oh, I think I could take a throw on him. No, please don't. It's not going to end well for you. Uh, moving behind the dish, we have Miguel, Miguel Montero and a guy that I honestly had never heard of, Tuffy Gosowich. 
I thought it was a made-up name like John Dowd was for Barry Bonds. I honestly thought this was a name filler on the 40-man spot for Diamondbacks. Yeah, I mean, I I, I know my uh, my friends out in Arizona have heard of him before um, uh, with the ASU product, but uh, I I was a little surprised. I love the name; just it's a great baseball name. But uh, in terms of what he's done in the minors, there's not really a lot to to hang your hat on. No real great walk rates, average strikeout rates. You know, power a little bit of power here and there. I would say he's a non-factor. Um, he's already uh, oh look at that. He's already 31. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, sorry about him. Um, I would say that uh, what I what the good news out of this is that perhaps uh, Miguel Montero is going to get all the burn he can handle. Is that good news, though? Because, you know, in 2011 and 2012, both 140-plus game seasons, last year only had 116 games, struggled with a back injury, and then ended the season with a hurt hand that required uh, finger surgery on him and had a – Pretty poor offensive season for his standards. I mean, 11 and 12 are rather stable. Walk rate was good. It uh, was really good. Strikeout rate was right there, just uh, a tick below league average, but hit for a good average, got on base, showed good power for a catcher, and then last year was poor, didn't hit for a good average, uh, only hit 11 home runs and 475 plate appearances. I don't know if I want Miguel Montero playing 140-plus games. Yeah, it's true. And – uh from talking to Brandon McCarthy, I'm not sure all the pitchers love the way he calls games, but um, yeah, uh, that's an issue I, as well. <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, as fantasy players, we're kind of agnostic, and we just, you know, we want the most play appearances we can get out of our catchers. I think in general, I mean, maybe if he's hitting 230, then it's just going to hurt you. But um, lifetime batting average of 267. He's only 30. Uh, I'm not ready to write him off yet. I think he can uh, he can have one more good season. I don't know if it's going to be necessarily this one, and I don't know how much I'll pay to figure out if it's this one. But I'll pay a little bit, uh, especially in two catcher leagues, uh, that sort of deal. And also, I, I've seen him dropping really far. Um, and if I can get him, you know, if I can get him as the 12th drafted catcher in a 12-team mixed league with, with 12 catchers, I'll do it because I do actually think that he has some upside to jump out of the 260, you know, 20 home group. I mean, he's shown before. Uh, right now, uh, he's the right now he's the 15th catcher going off the board in NFBC with AJ Pierzynski, Jared Saltalamaki, and Jan Gomes ahead of him. Carlos Ruiz, Russell Martin, and Ryan Domit behind him. See, I think I would take him above all those guys. I mean, I know Jan Gomes is 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 got some helium right now and he probably has a starting job um and he did improve his contact rate last year and so therefore he if he could combine the power and the nice contact rate he could be really exciting so i i understand why he did that um and i even like devin mesoraco uh who picked right ahead of miguel montero but i don't like devin mesoraco better than miguel montero i mean in mine miguel montero was taken in the 24th round 328th pick um, behind Devin Mesoraco, behind JPA. Um, yeah, that's inexcusable. So I'm not uh, – I think he's dropping too far. I mean, behind he's uh, almost 100 picks behind A.J. Pruszynski. Um I don't know about that. I think I'd rather 
pass on AJ Pruszynski and have a hundred picks of, of picks and then take uh, Miguel Montero. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, let's jump to the mound. Two guys would like to look at the mound. First guy, Patrick Corbin. Overall, nice body of work nice. last year. But over the last two months of the season, it was a different story than it was in the first four months. You look at the first four months, held batters to a 205 batting average, a 584 OPS, struck out 22% of the guys, uh, and allowed nine home runs in 570 plate appearances. You go to August and September, 309 batting average against, 843 OPS, strikeout rate dropped to 19%, and allowed 10 home runs in just 290 plate appearances. Uh, you know, the swing rate, the swing and miss rate, all of that was the same. Uh, on the surface, this looks like some really bad Babbitt luck hitting them all at the same time. What do you think it is? Do you have the handedness of any of those uh, second-half home runs? I can tell you. Uh, versus lefties, 10 home runs against – oh, wait a second. Let me switch that. Uh, I'm sorry. He only had one – only three home runs against same-handed hitters all year. So nine of the ten home runs he gave up in the second half were against righties. Yeah, and that's I mean that's been my book on him. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of having um, you know I wrote this this piece this week about the finding the ideal pitcher using yes uh, good piece. And um, sort of de- defines my my uh, my philosophy when it comes to looking for pitchers is just I want to see something breaking in both directions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that makes me feel comfortable. And that's when, and I think, you know, it's served me pretty well. I, I honestly, I almost never had problem with pitching. Um, and it's been mostly, uh, you know, hitters just tanking it and me not really having as many, I don't have as many stats when it comes to hitters to look at, you know, I don't have as many ways to break them down and ways to think about, you know, what they can do. So with pitchers, I just usually look for pitches breaking in different directions and, you know, when you look at Patrick Corbin, you look at his, his changeup, his whiff rate is, is below average, and his grounder rate is below average, even when you split it out for right-handers. So he he throws it a lot more against right-handers, and so he knows this is an issue, and he knows he needs to develop a changeup. Um, you know, and then I also read Jeff Sullivan's great piece this week about sometimes two pitches is enough. Right. And he was about Randy Johnson um, I mean, to some extent, Urban Santana has been doing this. Um, so there are pitchers that, that find success. Oh, A.J. Burnett is a great example. Um, so there are pitchers that do it. But even when I talked to A.J. Burnett, he admitted, yeah, I have a knuckle curve. I have this weird knuckle slider thing, too. You know, and oh, yeah, my career took a huge step forward when I developed a sinker. Um, so, you know, even even the guys who've done it, have wrinkles that we might not know about. Maybe, maybe Randy Johnson actually had two or three sliders, um, and diff- and maybe he had different angles. I mean, I don't, I don't remember. I, I remember that he was great. I don't know if I remember exactly what his arm angles were. All I mean, to me, it was more like uh, a two thirty arm angle. If you look under the clock face, it seemed like he threw more from a two thir- a two to two thirty. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe that has some effect on on the platoon splits too. But any case, I. I, I I don't want to be too strident. In the case of Patrick Corbin, his changeup, his worst pitch, is better than other changeups I've seen. I mean, 13% whiff rate is only a couple ticks below average. And if he could if he could pump that up to 15%, then all of a sudden he has an average changeup, a plus-plus slider, 
and a good sinker. So, um, you know, he's, he's really close. And uh, I don't want to say totally avoid him. Obviously, he's going to be overvalued by some and undervalued by some just based on who's looking at the first half and who's looking at the second mm-hmm. half. But um, I do think that his overall numbers actually do a decent job of talking about his talent because he's just a few whiffs on the changeup short of being really excellent. I would like to see him incorporate more same side changeups. Use that more to lefties. I, those are my types of pitchers. You know, when you talk about your the kind of perfect pitcher you like, I'm good with guys that are willing to throw their off speed pitch to the same handed batters. And you know, sometimes guys. Hellickson's a great example of that. Cole Hamels is a really good example of that. Mark Burley does that. I think that could help Corbin if he would be more willing to do that. I mean, I think it's also a measure of trust in a pitch, right? Um, you know, you you look at him and he throws. He's thrown. He threw 530 uh, changeups and 650 sliders to right-handers. He threw 22 changeups and 340 sliders to lefties. So um, obviously, he, if given a choice, he wouldn't throw the changeup. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it, that does speak to something, and also the whiff rate totally drops out the bottom when he throws it to lefties. So. Um, it's not a great pitch, but if it can be average, I don't want to. I don't want to come down too negatively on him. And and, and if you want to read a little bit more about this, uh, Chad Young wrote a great piece about about uh, about exactly what we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Addison Reed takes over the closer role there. Heath Bell gone. Addison Reed slides in. I think there's a lot to like with Addison Reed. The one concern I have is you know the fly ball tendencies and going to that ballpark, but. When you look at some of the things that kind of flew under the radar last year with him, his swing and miss rate went up last year. You know, his swing and rate in 2012 when people liked him was 21% and with a 25.4 last year. Strikeout rate still stayed strong. He has no discernible splits. His weighted on base average is a two-point split between lefties and righties. And uh, strikeout rates a little higher against righties, obviously, because he spins a lot of stuff away from him. But still, no really, no real discernible split. I really like Addison Reed from 2014. Yeah, uh, there's been a, some conversation about his uh, drop in velocity. He lost uh, almost two ticks, um, and you know, but I, I don't think that the the park is a big deal. I mean, he was obviously in a, in a tough park before. You know, looking at his per pitch numbers, he is an excellent changeup and an excellent slider, so it doesn't surprise me at all that he has no uh, platoon splits. Uh, I've liked Addison Reed from the minute he started blowing away minor league hitters, and um, the only minor thing is that I wanted those minor league numbers to to show up in the majors, and they haven't quite. But of course not, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but. Um, you know, and also I guess uh, I would remind people that um, the bar for a closer is is ridiculously high. The the average um, strikeout rate for a closer is ten per nine, um, and so he actually falls a little bit short of average when it comes to strikeout rate, even though it looks great. Um, but I think he has the potential to show better command in the future, um, and I actually think you know. His strikeout rate will go up a little bit in the in the National League, and I think he could have a really nice year. Yeah, agreed on all points. Let's uh, go over to the Dodgers and let's start off with Yasiel Puig. We talked earlier about how uh, how tough it is to try to forecast what Adam, uh, Aaron Hill's going to do. 
I don't know how you forecast what Yasiel Puig's going to do. We're talking about a guy before the All-Star break hit was hitting 391 with a 1038 OPS, walking just 4% of the time and striking out 22% of the time. Rest of the way, hit 273 with an 853 OPS, despite more than doubling his walk rate and not striking out anymore. His strikeout rate was almost identical. Uh, and then the, the, the issue of 11 steals, yay, but he was 11 of 19 as he had base running issues and stealing bases, uh, stealing bases having issues there as well. ADP is currently 23. He's the eighth outfielder off the board. He's going ahead of Giancarlo Stanton. Carlos Gomez, Jay Bruce, and Alex Rios. How comfortable are you with that? You know, uh, Pothorts was a big Alex Rios fan, but um, I would definitely, I'm definitely taking him ahead of Alex Rios. Um, am I taking him ahead of Stanton? That's rough, man. I mean, that's a lot of power, and I'm definitely projecting Puig to take a step back in batting average. He, he uh, yeah, I was just. Uh, in doing some research for this, I just reread. Um, I did a piece called "The Roller Coaster" that is Yasiel Puig, and it was just one at bat um, against Adam Wainwright. Um, I think people might remember it. It was the one where uh, Puig thought he hit a homer. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Flipped his bat and uh, ended up with a triple. Um, I think that I think that at bat really really encapsulates Yasiel Puig. And in both really great, I think in, in ways that I find uplifting and exciting as well as uh, concerning and, you know, brings out the old grandpa on me. <laughs> but uh, the, the, one of the things that's really great about that one is, um, you know, Wainwright comes in knowing that Yasiel Puig reaches too much and that he was, um, he was seventh worst in baseball in the first, in the first half. Um, uh, or actually, who's seventh worst in baseball reaching in general last year? Um, so Wainwright throws him. Uh, even though Wainwright was like the league leader in uh, in first pitch strike percentage, Wainwright throws a, a, a first pitch that almost hits him in the knee. And Puig doesn't doesn't flinch, doesn't doesn't swing at it at all. Um, and then and then you know. There's a there's a little bit more to it, um, and and Puig does make a mistake and just totally whiff at a curveball in the outside corner that he shouldn't have swung at at all. Um, but the reason that Puig swung at that is that he had, um, you know, league leading uh, oppo power. Yes. Uh, I, you know, I'm not trying to pull this thing. I can take this thing out the other way. Um, and you know, even when it comes to that reach rate, Puig uh, only 13. Uh, regular regulars improve their their reach rate in the second half as much as as Puig did. He basically reached at a league average rate in the second half. So he definitely adjusted for all this talk that he's a hacker and he's toolsy and you know he doesn't really know what he's doing and he doesn't know how to play the game and all this stuff. He he has made adjustments and. He um, and part of the thing, part of the, the pitches that you see him swing at that you think are bad pitches for him to swing at, he can he can swing at those because he has really strong wrists and he can really take balls out the other way. Um, so mm -hmm. his his like his toolsiness is really um, a benefit to him. And he's way younger than you know. And I hate to make comps based on race, but you know, Cespedes has some uh, similarities. They swing a lot. Yes. They reach a lot. They miss a lot. They have a lot of power. Um, you know, they, 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 uh, kill bases, but not, you know, not, you know, 
elite way. Cespedes had that big correction his second year um, where his batting average fell. And so I do think that on some level I, I'm projecting Puig into like a 270 season. He's going to have some ups and downs, some crazy streaks again, but also probably some bad streaks in a full season. Um, but I think the power and the speed and the fact that he's younger than Cespedes will all will all come to the fore. And I, I, I see him as doing something like 270, 28, and 15. You know, and, yeah, those are fair enough numbers. And I think those those numbers are yeah, that's better than Rios. And you could make as you could make a, a, a an argument for that being better than Stanton. I mean, just because Stanton doesn't give you anything in speed and probably will have a bad batting average. So in my mock, uh Puig dropped to thirty three. Um he dropped uh behind uh Gomez, Carlos Gomez, I'd say yes. Uh behind Stanton, maybe, behind Chu. Uh, okay, behind Bruce, I don't think so. I'm not putting him behind Bruce. Bruce doesn't steal any bases, doesn't really give you a lot of batting average. Right. And even though he's not going to hit 40, so uh, I was happy to get Puig at 33. Yeah, when I look at when I look at uh, the FSTA draft, Puig went 28th in that draft, 13 teams in that one. He was the second pick of the third round behind Trout, McCutcheon, Gonzalez, Harper, Braun, Jones, Rio, Stanton, Gomez and Ellsbury. So he was the 11th outfielder taken off the board in that draft. I mean, I think it's a decent, I think he's going in a pretty decent place, but I think that he, you know, it's actually sort of commendable fantasy to the fantasy players out there that he isn't going in the first round. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Um, Learned a lot, I guess, but um, I still, I still think he has first round upside. And even if he only hits 270, um, the rest of the package is going to keep him in that second round. Um, Place. So I'm okay with him in the second round. I'm really happy with him if he drops out of the top 30. Agreed. Let's. I just want to shift to the infield for a minute because I want to stick on the unpredictability theme for a minute. What do you do with Alex Guerrero, a, a guy that we have no idea what he could do against major league hitters? Uh, I've seen projections all over the place from we don't even have, you know, if, if you go to fan graphs, there aren't even numbers up there for him. Mike Petriello's written about him. But all that we have are fan projections. Fans say 11 home runs hits 253. I've seen some projections that have him with 13 home runs hitting 260. I've seen some projections giving him close to 20 home runs and have him a top eight. So the projection prognosticators are all over the place on this guy. Personally, these guys, these types of uh, players scare me. The middle infielders. I'm a guy that drafted Nishioka. I'm a guy that drafted, uh, who was the guy that was uh, Nakajima with the A's? You know, I've, I've, I've somehow run into those guys in tout wars the last couple of years. I'm glad Guerrero's in the NL so I don't have to bid on him because I could see myself ending up with him too. What do you do with a guy like Alex Guerrero? Uh, you know, I wish I had, uh, I wish I had some uh, projections of my own. I did a piece recently about, uh, projecting, um, you know, projecting different, uh, different, players and how difficult it was to project guys out of Cuba because the sample size is small. The the way they play in Cuba is crazy. They play in five or six different home parks by the end of the year. And some of the parks have holes in the outfield. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, with defections and stuff, there's wild swings in talent. Um, and there's uh, a lot of political stuff that goes on where players are, you know, you know, Escobar, they made him sit for a year basically because they thought he was going to run. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
there's these there's a lot of things that make it really hard to project and i don't and i don't uh, i'm not surprised at all that there's uh, wild swings um and uh, i would just say that uh his translated numbers from from davenport um from clay davenport are much less exciting than Jose Abreu's and 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 the big hitters and and even Cespedes and these guys. So uh, and those Davenport translations have have consistently over overplayed their hand. Uh, I would say. So um, we've got a guy who's the Davenport translation says um, in 2011 he had a basically a major league equivalency of 250 batting average. 320 on base, 480 slugging. And we know that sometimes those numbers are overblown. So uh, we're talking about a guy who might hit 240 with, you know, 12 homers or something, 15 homers. Yeah, that's that's kind of where I sit on him. When I when I play the three ahead, three behind game, Anthony Rendon, Colton Wong, Omar Infante are the three guys ahead of him. And Bonifacio, Rutledge, and Ackley are the three behind him. Personally, I, I'm looking at Bonifacio in Kansas City with Ned Yost's lead foot, and I'm more willing to take a chance on Bonifacio stealing 30 plus bags with extra playing time in Kansas City than I am on Guerrero, you know, possibly uh, achieving the line that you talked about. Yeah, uh, I think it's a, he's not, you know, far from where he should be. Uh, that. That, that crowd seems right. But the name that I like uh, on that list, other than Bonifacio, uh, but, you know, the problem is that Omar Infante is there now. Yeah. Um, so there's a little bit of a problem there. But, uh, you know, Boney is a util guy. They can probably find a place for him. Um, the name that I like out of that list is Rendon. I want him. I think uh, I think that some of the pure hitting ability um, that we kind of saw as it was a nation um, – last year was kind of come emerging. I think that's going to really come out this year. Um, I really, I think that he hasn't had a lot of playing time because of injuries. And I think, you know, I really, I really like Rendon this year. I don't know. I, I hate to make it uh, a, a hunch, but I think there was a lot of pedigree from the scouts. Um, and there was a lot of good in his numbers in the minors. And there was, for for a debut, he had a good season. Yeah, I agree. I think people have kind of written him off uh, too early. And the injuries kind of set him back a little bit. But a lot of talent in that kid. There's a lot of talent in that bat. I mean, you can't go from being projected as the first overall pick of a draft to being a bust in a four-year cycle unless you have some serious issues, and he doesn't appear to have those issues. Thanks. Uh, let's go back out to the outfield. Let's look at the rest of the outfielders. We have Matt Kemp, who currently has an ADP of 50, despite all the question marks around him. We have Carl Crawford, who is no longer even a top 100 guy or a top 150 guy. He's going 188. And then we have Andre Ethier, uh, a guy that's way down there at 323, a guy that Dave Cameron wrote about a few weeks ago that said, hey, he's a cheaper Shinshu, too, if you're looking at from an offensive standpoint against righties. Ethier is pretty much out there to be had. It doesn't seem like anybody wants him, even the Dodgers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, that's an interesting way to put it. Uh, they, they want him enough to not trade him for nothing uh, and, and to not, you know, half his, his, his contract. Because I'm sure if they called the Mets and, and offered them Andre Ethier for, you know, half price, um, they, they'd get a, an interested ear. Uh, so I, I, uh, I think that 
they're probably saying, you know what, we can have a, a high price problem like this because we're the Dodgers. And Matt Kemp isn't looking super healthy. You know, I, I've heard that he's probably, what did you say? He's probably not healthy for the beginning of the season, right? Yeah. The last report I saw really wasn't, uh, not clear. Things aren't, he's not a hundred percent ready. So we'll see where things go. But that's what I read about him is he was a hundred percent ready right now. We're not, we're not about Kemp than, than, than we have right now. We have three outfielders and that's, I mean, the interesting thing is that uh, in that arrangement, Ethier is suddenly the center fielder. <laughs> yeah, not a good thing. But that's uh, yeah, that's that's kind of where thing goes. And Crawford, yeah, this is what happens with when the when speed guys go badly. It's it's just kind of funny to, to think about a guy that was uh, you know, usually a, always taken in the top two or three rounds, and now he's 188 ADP because he's simply a 32. It feels like he's 35 or 36. Yeah, Crawford. Yeah. Yeah, and, 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 you know, when he was with the Rays, they were always saying, oh, he could totally play center field. Oh, and, he hated it. Uh, uh, he hated it. He didn't want to play center field. He called it, there's one particular game. I remember they were in Toronto, and some something happened. BJ couldn't play, and they were like, hey, you're going to play center field tonight. And he, he made this comment. He said he felt like he had been sabotaged. <laughs> like, dude, all they're doing is asking you to play center field. And he didn't like hitting leadoff, and he didn't like playing center field. He wanted to be – and he's a really good left fielder. But to make that comedy, he felt like he was being sabotaged. But that was his thing. He was very comfortable in his role. He wanted to hit second, and he wanted to hit play left field. He did not want anything to do with center field, and he didn't like leading off. Yeah, and, you know – I'll I'll take a Carl Crawford in the reserve rounds and maybe even as my fifth outfielder. I mean, thirty three. I mean, we obviously or thirty two turning thirty three. Obviously, the best days are behind him. But um, you know, can he can he put together a five hundred fifty at bat season or a plate appearance season? Then then he could definitely still go ten twenty or something. So it's tough, man. When you look at a guy, if you, if I were to tell you Carl Crawford stolen thirty eight bases over the past three seasons combined. Yeah. You know, that from a guy who went from 60 to 47 in 2009, 2010, and then has stolen just 38 bases out of 48 attempts, which is good. But that's where he, that's where he's stolen base to go from 107 steals in a two year span to 38 in a three year span. That's crazy. And that's where all of his value came from. If he's not getting on second base, he's not scoring as many runs as he used to. You know, they, they called him the perfect storm at one point, And now he's just a perfect mess. Yeah. Yeah. You know, thing is, um, you know, I've been, I was looking into the contract year phenomenon for, uh, Pablo Sandoval. And one of the things, you know, it, it isn't necessarily something that's been proven in terms of results, but I reread, uh, Dane Perry's chapter on it in baseball between the numbers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, and it resonated with some other stuff that I couldn't find on the internet, but, uh, that basically said, that um, you can't see it in the results, but you can see it in the in the volume that that players in contract years uh, put up more innings pitched and more plate appearances, and it's obvious why they would do that. You know, if they have a nick or a cut, they'd rather you know go back out there, even if it's a little bit lesser results. They'd rather put up the volume that speaks to them being a starter that put up 600 plus plate appearances and four out of five seasons or whatever. You know, 
So they want to look like a guy who grinds it out, who's out there every day. And it always gives them a chance to get more counting stats if they're out there. So just look at Crawford's, you know, contract year to first year of the Red Sox in the prison. And that prism is just like, wow. I mean, just, you know, went from a perennial almost 700 plate appearance guy to just dropping out of nowhere. And now everyone just assumes he's going to be injured half the season. It's pretty much where it's at. Speaking of injured half the season, let's shift over to the mound and look at a guy who is my fantasy kryptonite. I, I love this guy, even though he has, has pained me gratefully, uh, greatly to own him the last couple of years. That's Dan Heron. Uh, Dan Heron's in Dodger Stadium, comes back home, pitched there in Pepperdine for college. When I look at Dan Heron, it, you know, it's been the back issue. Everything hinges upon his back and his shoulder. As long as the back's healthy, he's good. The problem is the last two years in the first half of the season have been a struggle for this guy. 2012, before he went on the disabled list with his back issue, league was hitting 297 off him, slugging 484. He comes back off the DL, 243 batting average against, 432 slug. Last year, before he hit the disabled list, 306 batting average against, 548 slugging against comes off the DL 228 batting average against 355 slugging percentage. So it's one of these things that's where his issue in, in, in writing that one of the stories is one of the first ones that I wrote here at fan graphs when he was with, when the time he was on the disabled list, he worked with uh, uh, Ryan Mathis in the bullpen and, and notice, you know, you're not getting a lot of separation between your fastball and your other pitches. So if, if you go from the fastball to a cutter, your fastball to your splitter, there wasn't much separation. So he worked with him and, and throwing a slow splitter. So he throws a fast and a slow splitter. And that whole thing really helped him look like the Dan Heron of old last year for the Nationals. And, oh, yeah, by the way, it was in a walk year, so now he's able to score a good deal with the Dodgers. Ah, dude, I, I never I never thought about that before. I'm just looking across his velocities right now. Fastball. 89, cutter 86, uh, curveball 78, spit finger 85. <laughs> you pretty much know everything's coming in at the same velocity. It's just going to have a little slightly different cut or this. And with Dan Heron, and with Dan Heron, you know where it's going to be because the guy fills the strike zone. So that's it was really playing against him because not only was there a little separation of velocity, you pretty much knew where it was going to be because he doesn't really make you chase anything unless he's burying the splitter. Yeah, at the same time, though, I think a guy with, like, a one-and-a-half uh, walk per nine rate like he's had much of his career has plus command, too. So I think that I think what he's probably hanging on to right now is, is just command. He's he, he, he can put it where he wants to put it in the zone, and it's all going to be 85. Um, so uh, it worked for Maddox uh, when he went west. He was still useful uh, a little bit in San Diego, so... Um, I think that, you know, there's definitely a chance that, I mean, obviously the home runs are the problem. I've always thought of, of Dodger Stadium as being more, uh, pitcher friendly than I think it is though. Um, it's not like it used to be. It it definitely feels more neutral than it used to be. It used to be one of the more extreme parks, but now today it, it just feels more neutral today than it used to be. Yeah, I'm going to look up the guts because I'm always surprised because I always, in my head, I'm like, oh yeah, Dodger Stadium, but, uh. You know, last year, uh, let's see here, Dodger Stadium, 99 park factor for home run. There you go. Uh, I'll read you something from the story that I found the, the information on the on the grip because uh, 
you the fan of uh, pitch grips. This was from Adam Kilgore, the Washington Post. Said Heron focused today on a splitter, a pitch that he had all but stopped throwing in his final few starts before the disabled list. He changed his grip, holding the ball in his index finger and middle finger further apart, almost like a fork ball, something he picked up from reliever Ryan Mathis. Uh, he sought his help because the difference between his fastball and splitter is about 10 miles an hour now. During his time on his disabled list, Heron identified one problem that his separation offered little disparity. And then he started, before he went on the disabled list, he actually was throwing curveballs just to get some separation. It really wasn't a good pitch, but he was just throwing curveballs to say, okay, just so you see something with a different velocity, here's my curveball, and then I can come back with the other stuff. But that's one of the things. He's, he's throwing two different splitters, one that dives a little and one that uh, is slower a bit more, and that's what he credited his success in the second half with. That's, uh, that's I, I can almost guarantee you you will see a piece about that uh, on the pages of Fangraphs this year. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. All right, uh, lastly, the bullpen. Uh, do you think – I mean, Kenley Jansen's awesome back there. Does the, does the presence of Brian Wilson – should that scare anybody who has Kenley Jansen in a keeper league? No. No, I don't think so. I mean, that I guess I laughed too soon. They they have taken him out of the role before. I, I don't know what the uh, the, thought, the thinking there is, but um, – uh, Kenley Jansen's cutter is Mariano-esque. It's filth. I mean, that's a, for people, that's a converted catcher. He was yeah. a, I saw him one of my first trips to the Arizona Fall League. The first game I went to, I get behind home plate, and I see Kenley Jansen walk out there and see the first pitch he throws. And I was like, oh, my God. Right away, I was in one of these leagues where you could call and pick up a guy or place a claim. I went into my league, my only league. I'm like, I want Kenley Jansen. And one of the commissioners was like, who? And I just give me Kelly Jansen, I, just based on watching his first pitch. Uh, and that was fun. But the, the bullpen has a lot of depth. You've got Brian Wilson to it. You've got what Paco Rodriguez did last year. You still have Brandon League uh, in there, J.P. Hal. I don't think if you have Kenley Jansen invest strongly, his ADP right now is 66. He's going third in closers. Kimbrell's one at 41st overall, which I think is too high as much as I love Kimbrell. Chapman is second at 62, and then Jensen's right behind him uh, at 66. Yeah, I mean, I kind of – I used to not want to have any top closers and just take the bottom of it all. Mm -hmm. But uh, recently I've decided that I'd rather, you know, do a little bit more of a tiered approach and, and get one guy who I think could be a top 10 closer just because there are – the top 10 guys do separate themselves with strikeout rates – ratios and if you do too much uh bargain binning with the with the uh with the relievers you can actually set yourself back and i've had long long arguments with people about this about you know oh your starters pitch so many more innings and your relievers pitch so so few innings it doesn't matter to your ratios but it does matter because if you have 300 reliever innings and i have 300 reliever innings and my 300 reliever innings all have ace ratios and yours have have turd ratios you've got 300 Chad, I mean, sorry, Chad Qualls. I mean, it's okay. He, he'll, be, he'll be useful. But if you had 300 Chad Qualls innings and I had 300 Kenley Jansen innings, there would be a difference. And you'd see it in the standings. Right. Yeah. So I do like the idea of buying it. I don't like the idea of getting paying for the number one guy like Kimbrell, you know, too much money. And a guy, yes, still pitches 70 innings and, yes, could get injured. So. Um, Jansen might be, I might be on some of my teams this year. Yeah, I mean, in the drafts that I've had, 
I've taken my closer. I took Addison Reed in the ninth round, and I just took Grant Balfour in the twelfth round. That a mock draft that I'm doing. Uh, for me to take two closers before twelfth round is is aggressive for me. I tend to be one of those guys that'll take one guy that I really like in the first ten rounds, and then I'll fill in back. Like if you were asking me to, uh, to take a couple of closers late in the draft, Jose, we talked about Jose Veras the other day. That's a guy that I like. I'd take him. I'd take Danny Farquhar, but Farquhar was actually drafted earlier in this mock draft. There are other Far- Farquhar fan. Farquhar went 167 in this. I took Balfour at 175, and then right after me, Jim Johnson and Bobby Parnell went. So it, there's a lot of closers going in this kind of format. But uh, I agree with you. Jansen is definitely a, a separator. Kimbrell, Jansen, and Chapman, the three of those, you have those, and you're getting a lot of production across the board. And I don't think Brian Wilson's presence should affect any, should scare anybody from drafting him. Probably you're right there. I, I, you know, in my industry draft, I, I took uh, Wei Haro as my first closer in the ninth, uh, in the ninth, 115. I mean, I, I feel pretty good with that. It was, it was one pick behind Trevor Rosenthal. I might have taken Rosenthal. Um, if I, yeah, I probably would have taken Rosenthal. I, I, I think he's kind of uh, sexcellent, but uh, <laughs> I, I think Wei Haro is fine. I, that's, that's kind of where I'll probably live. Eighth, ninth round, uh, find a closer. Nice. Um, be a decent closer. All right. Well, that wraps up the the review, and I hear that it sounds like your son's ready for your attention. Uh, so the next podcast will drop on Tuesday. We will be talking about the Giants and the Indians. So if you have any particular players you'd like us to cover for either one of those teams, please leave us a comment uh, on this post and let us know who we uh, who would you like us to talk about. Again, we get about six players per each uh, per team. So do that. Uh, any final comments for the listeners? You know, thank you for listening. Yeah, thank, I, I hope it's, this is the first time that we've had any kind of issues for whatever reason, but I've noticed it kind of ch- a little bit. So hopefully the final product uh, isn't doesn't sound too poorly. If it does, we apologize. Blame uh, Al Gore since he invented the internet. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks. <laughs>